All right, guys. Thank you for coming. I was, um, I have to admit, I was a little nervous that we would get here tonight. There'd be like two of us. <laughs> so it is very encouraging that you guys all came. I appreciate uh, you coming and spending your Wednesday night with us. Um, so we are going to be talking about covenant theology. So I don't know if, how much you guys know about covenant theology or not, but um, I know that it is something that I really, it started piquing my interest a few years ago, and I've been studying it kind of off and on a little bit, but really the last, I would say like six months has been something that I really have dug into. Um, a lot of the catalyst of my study of it came from our uh, curriculum in children's ministry. So I, don't, I know a lot of you teach in children's ministry off and on, but the way that our curriculum works through uh, the Bible, it talks about the covenants off and on, mm -hmm. and so just kind of stumbled into trying to figure out how do you explain the covenants to a fourth grader and that is hard that's tricky and so and then how do you explain the the broad sense of it and so that has led me into just a lot of study over the last bit and so i'm really excited to share that with you guys and just kind of give you a basis for covenant theology some of my goals here um, because there's no way we can cover everything in three weeks. It's impossible. <laughs> but my goal for you guys is to leave this study with an understanding of what covenant theology is, what the covenants are, and be able to have a almost like a little bullet point list of when someone says the covenant of works or the covenant of grace or the Abrahamic covenant, you know what it is, what it entailed, who was part of it, and how it fits into the larger story. So there's going to be a lot that we're not going to cover. If there's things that we don't cover that you want to learn about more, I am happy to talk to you. I, would, I can talk about covenant theology all day long. And if I don't know the answer, we're going to go find Ryan and we'll ask him. Because <laughs> <laughs> if you have a question, I don't know it. I want to know it. So, um, so let's jump in. I kind of, this sheet um, is, I was working on it up until this afternoon. Um, so it is my notes of just like, what I've been kind of consolidating everything down to. So I was like, you know what, I'm just going to print it off so everybody can have it. <laughs> so, so the first question really is just what is covenant theology? What is it? What is the definition of it? And I really loved this quote. Uh, it's R.C. Sproul. Apparently he said this all the time, and I love it. Reformed theology is covenant theology. If you say that you are a reformed believer, if you are reformed, we use that word a lot, right? Reformed. What you, part of what you mean by that is you are a covenant theologian, right? You believe in covenant theology. So if you, they're, they're, they go hand in hand, okay? So still doesn't answer the question, though. What is covenant theology? It seeks to understand the Bible through its covenantal structure. So if you think of, well, if you don't, the Bible is a book, but if you imagine it as like a book, it, the covenant, you could kind of think of it as like the chapters. It's how it's organized. It's how you can look at it and get the structure of how it is laid out, right? And so it's the next point there. It's the organizing, organizing principle of the Bible. So uh, there's, I didn't really go into this, but there's just in Reformed theology, there is like biblical theology and systematic theology. And so systematic theology, I'm sure you guys have heard of all the big books that are systematic theology books where you would open it up and it would be like, 
what is the doctrine of sin, what is the doctrine of God, of the doctrine of redemption, and all these things. Covenant theology says you need that, but you also need the biblical theology, which is to tell the story as one big story of redemptive history, right? So you can't just say, what is the doctrine of sin? And like you look at it thematically, you need the big long picture. It's one story, you know, from beginning to end, it's one story. And covenant theology kind of takes both of those and puts them together. Does that make sense? So it's like, it's taking the, like we can study the covenants and look at the sin element of it and the, the promises of them or the, um, you know, all the different parts of it, but it still is putting it inside of that larger story. So that's kind of the, the difference with the Reformed theology slash covenant theology is it's kind of marrying the biblical theology and the systematic theology together into one central theology, okay? And then covenant theology with that is... Um, it, there's just a few things this um, that help us to understand and just like get a deeper understanding of here. So atonement. When you understand, which atonement is um, Christ dying for us, paying for our sins. When you understand that Christ's death is not just this one thing, it is a culmination of all of the all of the covenants that have been put in place. It is that culmination. It gives it such a deeper and more like nuanced understanding to it. Because it's not just, I mean, not, and I say just, like Christ died for us is, you know, that's huge. But it's not just that he died on the cross for our sins. He's fulfilling in that moment all of these covenants leading up to it. Um, assurance. You can have assurance in your faith not because, I mean, yes, because Christ died and all of that, but you have assurance because that covenant was put in place before time began with God. And you can, like, you can be sure that that is going to happen, right? The sacraments, when we take communion, when you get baptized, um, and even just uh, beyond the sacraments, even just the signs of the covenant, like, they're amazing because it's showing you and it's reminding you every day what God has covenanted and what he's promised you and what is you know, going to be fulfilled for you. Um, I, this, we'll get to this next week, but I last week was driving down Concord and the night before I had been studying the Noahic covenant and there's like this beautiful rainbow. <laughs> so I'm driving down <laughs> Concord and like, and I, I mean, I've seen rainbows, they're beautiful, like whatever, but it was like, it just like smacked me in the face with how, like what it actually meant. Like I, and I, you know, I've obviously been in Sunday school and all of that where you talk about like, it's God's promise. But like, because I had such a deeper understanding of what that covenant actually was, I was like, well, holy cow, I need to like pull over and pray because, and praise God for this covenant sign in the sky that no one else here is noticing. You know? <laughs> um, and then finally, the continuity of redemptive history. So it's just, Kind of going back to what I said before, where covenant theology is, it just gives you that broader picture of what the um, all of redemptive history is. It's not just the individual stories. It's not, you know, all this. It's one big plan that has been in place before time began. 
Okay, so just um, a quick little note of what a covenant is. I imagine all of you know this, but a covenant is just a formal arrangement or agreement between two or more parties, right? So it's just like a, like a contract or an agreement. You know, probably all of you have covenant. Um, you, if you have a mortgage, you have a covenant. That's a covenant between you and your bank, you know? Yeah, it's uh, on a smaller scale than some of these covenants, but it's at the end of the day a covenant. Um, so the biblical covenants we're going to look at have some uh, consistent elements across them. They all have parties, uh, which we mentioned in the last sentence, uh, promises and blessings, conditions, penalties for not meeting those conditions, and then signs and mediators. So going back to my mortgage example, the parties obviously would be you and your bank. The promises, the blessings that they're going to give you money to pay for your house. The conditions are that you're going to pay the agreed upon monthly amount every month. The penalties would be if you don't pay it, we're taking your house. The signs would be like the actual paper you signed, your actual document. And then the mediator in this case wouldn't really have one unless you had like a lawyer set up your mortgage for you. The lawyer would be your mediator between you and the bank. Okay, so just, just to help put it into modern day terms of what, what these terms mean. So the biblical covenants we're, that we're gonna be looking at are covenant of redemption, covenant of works, and the covenant of grace. And then inside of the covenant of grace, we have it kind of worked out through numerous people. We have Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, and then the new covenant with Christ. Okay? So we are going to jump right into the covenant of redemption. I forgot to get, oh, never mind. There's some up there. Okay, so covenant of redemption. And sorry if I'm moving a little fast. We have, a, we have just have a lot to cover. <laughs> covenant of redemption. So the other part with this, with covenant theology, is there's not always a consensus of what everybody calls the same thing. So if you get into, if you ever read about covenant theology, some, I have some books to recommend if you would like to. They call things different things. So I've got, I'm trying to like list out if there are other names. So the covenant of redemption, oftentimes you, and I've definitely heard this phrase before, especially from like pastors, is uh, they will sometimes call it the pactum salutis, which in Latin just means the agreement for salvation. So regardless of what they're calling it, that it's the same thing. It's what we're talking about here. So the covenant of redemption or the pactum salutis um, is the pre-temporal agreement between the persons of the Trinity to plan and carry out redemption of the elect. So what that means is it is the agreement that was made between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit before time began to save the elect, the people that they, their people, right? So in covenant theology, you will find there are some people who disagree on whether this is a covenant or not. I don't think that anyone here is going to argue that that wasn't an agreement, but I thought I would just give you, just kind of run through some biblical points because all the rest of these we talk about, there's like a passage we can turn to to say like, and here, if you look at this passage, here's the covenant. So um, we're just going to run through some of this really quickly. In scripture, there is many times where you find the... Um, 
the language of the scripture talking about this agreement. Okay. So like uh, in that first point there, the like Acts, First Corinthians, Ephesians, First Peter, all of these verses um, speak about buying and selling the self, like for the salvation of the elect, right? Where like Christ purchases it with his blood. And, you know, so it's like, but when you think about that logically, it's like that had, if that is, he didn't just die and then it's like, oh yeah, and then I'm going to, oh yeah, oh right, my blood's going to pay for it. It wasn't like an afterthought, right? Like he went into time knowing that his, that he would be dying to pay for the elect. So that implies that there had to be a time or a time like a something before time that this agreement was made, right? Um, same thing as like whenever it calls Jesus the propitiation of our sins, that implies that he consented to die for our sins before time began. Because as we're going to see in the covenant of grace, when it starts, God is promising that there's going to be a Messiah who's going to come die, and time literally just started. So like Jesus had to consent to that at some point, right? So um, and you know, so if you're a propitiation, that means you're doing it to please God. And so it's not like God just like promised him to do it and Jesus had no say in it. If he's a propitiation, he's being, he's like willingly doing it. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Um, and then also describing, you know, it's the, all these verses are listed here. I encourage you to look them up. Please do. Don't just take my word for it, but we just don't really have time to turn to all of them at the moment. Um, it also talks about the Father, that he's sending Christ into the world. He's uh, giving him specific work to do. He's investing Christ with authority. All of these are like implying that it didn't just happen in that mo- It wasn't like they were letting it happen as it came. It was planned and then happening. Uh, Jesus was receiving the charge. He was uh, devoting himself to his Father's business. Of all, just all these things where it's like it's it seems clear when you read it that they are implying that there was something outside of time. Um, Hebrews 10 just has um, a dialogue kind of between the Father and the Son of Christ knowing about the desires of um, God that, that He would be willing to do His will. Once again, if He is consenting to do it. And Christ and God is promising at the beginning of time, then there had to be something before. Um, and then I have some other passages listed there um, that you can definitely read. And just if you're questioning any of this, like that you can go find that stuff there. So then, uh, so that's kind of the biblical rationale where you can see it in scripture because it's not like a, just one passage where you can be like, here's the covenant of redemption. So kind of all over those passages. But then the theological rationale behind it. So the existence of the covenant of works and the covenant of grace, which we're going to talk about in a minute, points to the existence of the covenant of redemption. So because the covenant of grace and the covenant of works are inside of time, there had to be something outside of time to set the parameters for what all of that was going to be. Right. Because, you know, God is not God did not create the world and put Adam in the covenant of works and like, OK, you, you know, you do you do good. And then he sends and God's like, 
oh, oh no, no, well, now what do I do? Now we gotta figure out, okay, Jesus, are you cool with uh, going down? And like, no, they had that all worked out. They knew what was, you know, they knew. They knew what was gonna happen. They knew and they planned for it and they had covenanted outside of time to make that happen, right? Um, and then, so that means that the covenant of redemption undergirds, kind of provides and establishes and guarantees everything that happens within the covenant of grace, but also the covenant of works. Like it, it, it's the underneath of it all, right? So I have a um, little chart that we're gonna build tonight. So this is gonna be our covenant of redemption. So it is um, outside of time, this is what outside of time looks like. You <laughs> were unaware. Um, so it is, it was established, you know, in eternity. And um, it is what is going to guarantee everything. So the section, this next thing, why is it important? Why, why do we need the covenant of redemption? Because it's a lot of the pushback that people I read about have given on that the covenant of redemption is not a thing is that, they're like, if it was all in God's mind, like, and before time, why does it matter? Like, why we even call it a covenant? Because they, people also argue, it's like, you have to have more than one party to have a covenant. And I'm like, well, you do have more, you know, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. I'm like, you, you know, if you believe in the Trinity, like, there are more than one party there. And it's important because it is what guarantees the salvation of the elect. You can look at Hebrews 6, 17, and 18. God made an unchangeable oath that our salvation is sure, right? When God, the Holy Spirit, and Christ said, we will do this, there's nothing that can change that, right? Because all three of them are unchangeable. Nothing, nothing can shake that, right? They, we, the elect, have been given to the Father in that covenant, I mean, given from the Father to the Son, and the Son has done everything that he said he would do in that covenant. And so for that covenant to be broken, one of them would have to no longer be God, right? Like they cannot not do it. They have to do it. Um, it also guarantees that all the conditions of our salvation have already been agreed upon. It's not like we're going to get halfway through the covenant of works or the covenant of grace, and then God's going to be like, you know what, no, 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 I changed my mind. Jesus also has to do this. No, it was established before the foundation of the world, and it can't change. So we can be sure that regardless of what happens, it will be the same and stay the same for eternity, right? Um, and then it also just, it shows just the incredible love that Christ and God have and the Spirit have for us, the elect, because it wasn't, like I said before, it wasn't some afterthought. It wasn't some just like, well, I guess we'll save them. No, they planned this from eternity past to elect and to save, you know, their children. And that, you know, if you, so if you look at this and you don't feel that assurance and that like just overwhelming love, like come talk to me because I don't think I, I explained it well enough. <laughs> All right. So, 
Let's move on. You guys want to turn to Genesis chapter 1. Um, we're going to talk about the covenant of works. So, um, in Genesis 1, we're not going to go over much of this, but obviously you guys know what happens. God creates the world, and in doing so, creates time as well, right? So he creates time, he creates um, the world. And in the creation, he, um, you know, creates the world, the, all, all the things, right? And he creates all the animals, and then he creates man. And in his establishment of, uh, or in the creation of man, he establishes the covenant of works immediately, okay? So before we get into that, just to give you a little some of the other names you might hear of this as is the covenant of nature, covenant of life, covenant of creation. And then for the people who, my, my take on what I read is that they just didn't like calling it a covenant, so they call it the endemic administration. I'm like, whatever. <laughs> um, so let's look in oh, my tiny little Bible print. Um, <laughs> In verse 24, we can see that, um, so it says, God, let, and God said, let, every earth, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kind. So all the other things that have been created, all the other animals, you know, all the different kinds, every single one it says according to their kind, according to their kind, according to their kind, every single one of them. Well, then you get to... 20, what is that, 26? And it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. So that's different. So immediately we know something is different, right? He has made everything else. You know, he made the cows like cows. He made the dogs like dogs. But he made humans like God, okay? So immediately we know this is different. This is a different relationship. And so... Let's jump down to verse 28. Uh, and God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on earth. So, immediately, man is created, and the first thing out of God's mouth is what? It's a blessing, right? says, and God bless them, and then, and then it goes on to tell us, what does God bless them with? Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion. You might be thinking to yourself, as I was, like, well, those are commands. They're not like blessings. They're commands. And the beautiful part of this is they are commands, but they're also blessings, right? The enjoyment of God's blessings are caught up with the fulfillment of the commands, when you do what God has asked you to do in a perfect world, that's all blessing, right? You are blessed through doing what God has told you to do. And um, so they are set up, given these blessings, given the promises that they will be fruitful. They can do whatever they want in this beautiful garden that they've been given, right? They just have to follow um, or they just have to do these things that God has told them to do. Um, I want to jump back up to parties. So we're 
about to get into the conditions and things, this covenant is between God and Adam. But Adam is acting as, it's called the fancy word, is the federal head. Okay, federal is means covenant basically so he's the covenantal head of humanity right he is the representative if you will of all of us okay so he is going into this uh being put to the test if you will for all of us so um and there i didn't list any of it but there's plenty of scriptures throughout the bible that talk about um adam kind of in this role of representative um so let's jump down to to chapter 2, verse 16. Let's get to... Uh, actually, we're starting at 15. And the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work and to keep it. So he's put him in this garden. And the Lord commanded the man, saying, You shall surely eat of every tree in the garden. Another command and another blessing. Like, how awesome. I'd be like, great. That's, that's my kind of command, right? Like, you can eat... Anything in here. (laughs) Um, Saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Okay, so we have now our parties, our promises. Now we have our condition. They are not allowed to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. One, One tree they can't eat of, and it also, the same verse gives us the penalty. What's the penalty if they break that? Death, right? And uh, if you jump down a little bit, I think I have this in there, yeah. I think it's important to notice that, I think we, I think we, from what I have read about the covenant of works, people often summarize it as, we had to, like you're earning your salvation, right? Adam was earning it. No, he was not, okay? God put him into a beautiful garden, blessed him immediately, gave, like set him up for perfection, and all Adam had to do was maintain, right? <laughs> all he had to do was to um, keep the keep God's words, follow God, and not rebel against him, right? Because I think... Uh, When God says not to eat the fruit of the tree, he puts a condition on Adam's enjoyment of the blessings he already has. So he is saying, you are blessed. Adam and Eve are, there are no more blessed people than them. They were blessed from the get-go. And all God said is, you may not rebel against me and my word, and you will continue enjoying your blessings. And that is fundamentally different than saying, you need to earn, like, do well and then I will bless you. Do you guys understand how that is different? Like it is completely different. (laughs) So from the beginning, God blessed humanity. And just the only condition was that we could not rebel against him. Um, And then the sign um, is the tree of life, right? That's the other tree that's mentioned in this passage. And it's um, interesting because it returns in Revelations at the very end as kind of the sign of covenant blessing. Because at that point, like at this point in the garden, they have everything. They have complete unfeathered access to God. And that is what we will have in Revelation. So it's kind of this like mirror image of the covenant blessing, the covenant finally being 
kind of brought to fruition at the end with the tree of life. Um, any questions on the covenant of works before we move on? Does that make sense? You guys get it? Okay. Um, so then, unfortunately, we turn to the next chapter, Genesis 3, 1 through 13. And as we all know, it's no surprise here, Adam and Eve break the covenant, right? They immediately, uh, not immediately, I don't know how long it is, but they uh, break their uh, covenant with God. They choose to be loyal and to believe the serpent, to believe the deceiver instead of God, and they um, rebel against what God has told them to do, right? And so in that, sin enters the world and um, it affects and infects all of humanity. And because because Adam was the federal head, we all are infected by it now. But God graciously provides another way, right? So this, the covenant of works, we're going to have this be our time starts here. And the covenant of works... Uh, kind of goes out from there, okay? So then, so yeah, if we go to the next, we have the covenant of grace. And so the covenant of grace is, we're just going to talk about the part with Adam tonight, but the covenant of grace is God's response to the covenant of works being uh, broken, right? Now the covenant of works does not go away, but it is kind of, uh, it's not replaced, I don't know the right word. Uh, it is added on, the covenant of works, or the covenant of grace is kind of added on with the covenant of works. So it's kind of from right, oops, that's not working, from right inside covenant of works, we've got now, covenant of grace that goes along with it. So let's look at uh, 3.14. And just to point out to you, um, you know, like, yes, it is gracious that God provided the covenant of grace, but it's also... You know, thinking through, like, it's gracious that he didn't make us wait. You know, he could have made us wait a thousand years in punishment, and then he provides a way, right? But no, he, like, immediately, like, it happens. And, like, in that same, like, conversation, they are immediately given the promise of Messiah, right? So it is, like, even that alone is such a gracious, blessed thing that he, and goes back to, like, just that he loves us, you know, and doesn't, didn't want them to suffer through that. Um, I read a lot of people saying like, or not a lot. I read several people saying that they're like, they would put, they phrased it like at, after Adam fell, God could have not said he could just scrap the whole project. And I think I disagree with that. So it can be, I don't know if I have the authority to disagree with theologians, but I disagree with that because if we believe that this is in place, God cannot not do this. Like, he may not have done it the same way that he did. He could have chosen any 
myriad of ways to make it happen. But if he covenanted to redeem his people, he had to redeem his people. So, just putting that out there. <laughs> um, okay, so let's look at Genesis 3, 14. 14. Well, actually, we're going to look. So, we're not really going to cover a lot of all the curses and everything in here. It's all super interesting. We're really just going to focus on the part that deals with the Messiah and the gospel. There's like so much you can read about all the rest of this. It's all super interesting. I wish I had more time to share, but I just don't. So, um, so let's look at just verse 15. So he kind of goes through and he like curses the serpent. He curses the, or, uh, he doesn't really curse the woman, but he, he curses the woman and then deals with Adam in order. But so we're in the section where he is talking to the woman or he's talking to the serpent. Sorry. So look at verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. All right. So first of all, uh, which I had never thought about this before the, that first sentence, I will put enmity between you and the woman that even that is a gracious thing of that. He, cause at this point, Eve has now sided with Satan, right? She has, broken her covenant with God, Adam too, broken their covenant with God, and they've sided with Satan. And so God, this, I'm putting enmity between you, is like, nope, that's done. Like, he is severing that tie. He is saying, you are mine. You cannot be Satan's. Like, he's kind of severing that. So it's, even that is a gracious thing. He's not allowing them to continue on. He's, you know, I'm putting enmity between you and serpent. And then between your offspring and her offspring. So there's, you know, going to be enmity there. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So I am confident that all of you sitting in this room have heard of uh, this preached and all this, but this is uh, the, the prompt. This is the promise given at the very beginning of the covenant of grace. And it, it's often referred to as the uh, pro evangelium. I think is how you say it. Um, it's just the first time the gospel is given in the Bible. And I think what is what I want you guys to take away from this primarily is that with the covenants of, of grace, well, in all the covenants, but these covenants are great. If we look up here at our thing, as we move, so this is kind of time here, as we move through time, we are going to have more and more covenants coming along. Okay. Okay, so right now we are here with Adam, okay? We have been given one verse, and it's not, I mean, it's, there's a lot that's said there, but there's not a lot of detail, right? It is uh, basically just, he's going to, there's a Messiah coming, right? And as we move along, next we're going to have Noah, and we're going to get a little more detail, Okay. And then we're going to have Abraham and then Moses and then David and then the new covenant. And it's going to become a reality at this point. So as we move through scripture, as we move through time, there are more covenants given. And every new covenant that is given 
is part of that larger covenant and it just advances the covenant a little more. It gives us more detail. It gives us more clarity. It gives us all, all these things. It's just walking us through so that by the time we get to here, we will have a very full picture. Because at this point, we know, we know, what did it say? It said, uh, he shall bruise your head and he shall bruise his heel. Okay, so we know there's a he and we know like there's going to be something, you know, and it was enough at this point. I, you know, I believe that they knew it was a Messiah. They knew he was coming. It was enough for them to have faith in the gospel. <coughs> but they don't have much detail, right? When we're going to see next week, when we get to the Noahic covenant, we're going to get a little more about Christ or about God and how he um, is being gracious to the world. And then we're going to get to the Abrahamic covenant where he is making promises to Abraham about what his descendants are going to be like, what the, what that's going to look like. But even at that, we don't have like, it's not super clear, you know, it's not until you get, much further in that it's, you know, getting much more clear. So I think it's, I think what I want to, you to take away with, I know we haven't done a ton of going into all of these, obviously, but that to this, to me, this chart was a revelation, to be honest, like, because otherwise it's just very confusing because it's like, well, okay, but then I have the mosaic and it's saying this and then you have this and like, and they seem to not necessarily compete, but they kind of compete with each other. Like, well, which one, but what's one like the true one? And so we, but when she realized that they build on each other and any, there's some saying, I don't remember what it is now. It's like all new revelation, uh, like clarifies old revelation or something like that. So like, as you read through the Bible and you go through and you get to like the new Testament, interprets the Old Testament, right? You don't use the Old Testament to interpret the New Testament because the New Testament was further along in time and it just was more clear than the Old Testament. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. Um, so a couple more things on the covenant of grace. So the sign for the covenant of grace, it is a uh, the sacrifice of animals for their skins. This was... I don't know that I knew this before, but it was, that was also just kind of a very interesting thing to think about that, you know, when Adam and Eve, every day they would have been getting dressed with these animal skins, it would have just been this reminder of this covering. Something had to die to cover their shame, you know, because immediately, you know, when they, right, when they sin, what's the first thing they notice? That they're naked and they need something on them, you know? And so it's like, and not, not at all that anything had to die for anything I'm wearing. But I think there's something that you can think about there, like that there is this element of like we are, you know, having to wear clothes. You know, it's, it's not, it does, doesn't translate exactly. But, you know, even things like that of like little things that can help just be that like trigger in your mind of, you know, that it's a sign that they were wearing animal skins that had to die to cover their shame. Um, and then just, I just found this really interesting of, you know, so Messiah is promised next chapter is uh, the birth of Cain and Abel and Eve names her first son Cain, which means here he is. So you had to think that Eve is thinking, 
all right, here he is. He's going <laughs> to defeat uh, this thing that, you know, seduced us over away from God and ruined everything. And, it, you know, and it wasn't Cain. It wasn't Cain. And so at that point, that's kind of where in time they're just waiting for this Messiah. And, you know, and as they're getting more and more clarity as they go and they're making these new covenants, it still goes back to they're waiting for that promised Messiah. So it's, you know, this is this is the, what's the word, uh, commencement of the covenant of grace. We don't have a lot of detail, but we have all the detail we need, right, to be able to say, like, this is what is coming. So, um, all right. Any questions about any of that? Anything that wasn't clear or you want to just, we have, we do have time. All right, um, so for next week, so what, how this is gonna work. So tonight, um, we were kind of just going over the big three and kind of what kind of deal is. Next week, we are gonna try to get through uh, Noah, Abraham, Moses, and David. <laughs> I'm not sure if we're gonna get to David or not. David might be the next week. But then if, we will definitely do these three. And then the final week, we will um, look at the new covenant and um, and then just kind of talk about um, how you, how knowing all of this now affects how you read scripture, how you study, how you just do all the, all the things. So, um, so for next week, if you are the type who likes a little homework and would like to do some stuff on the very first page here, I have, I have the scriptures next to what the ones we're covering next week of the actual covenants. It would be um, beneficial, I think, to you to read through them because we will not have time to read fully through them next week. So if you or if you're a, if you listen to them, you can just listen to them in your car, read through them. There's not, I mean, it is several chapters, but it's not that long. So, um, yeah. And then also if there's anyone here who is, really looking for more that they would like to do on this last page here I kind of listed all the resources that I have been using this first one here it is a, a class I don't know when it was recorded it was recorded I think several years ago but it is a class taught by Lincoln Duncan at Reformed Theological Seminary on covenant theology it has been amazing I have listened through it twice now and it was just really great. Um, it is so I put the website there. It's also on your phone. They have an, an app, which is I've been using it now for quite a bit. Where they have like not just this course. They have lots of courses on there for free, where you can just kind of take them and listen to them, and it's on your phone. So it's kind of like a podcast, but it's a seminary uh, class. So, and then book wise, the app is RTS. Yes, it's just the RTS app. I think I just searched Reformed Theological Seminary. This is a book that was written by the RTS staff. It is fantastic. I highly recommend it. Um, it has really everything you could need and want to know about covenants, if it's something you're interested in. Uh, after the study is done, you're welcome to borrow as well. You can't, you can't have it until we're done with this, though, because I'm still in the middle <laughs> of studying. Uh, but it is really great. It is kind of broken up by chapter 
with the um, all the different covenants, and then it goes through the biblical, theological, and historical stuff. So it's not just on the covenant; it has a lot of historical stuff too. Um, Christ in the Covenants is a great book. I honestly have not read all the way through it, but that course and this book reference this book a lot. And I will say, he is the one who inspired my chart up here. But his is, was my creative brain. I was like, I'm not really feeling your lines here, buddy. So I was going to try to, oh, there it is. Like, so yeah, his is, his is similar, but he's got like all these like curvy things. And I was like, no, we're going gonna to take those out. <laughs> and then, so, but it is a good book. I have, the parts I have read, I have enjoyed. And then the last one is Sacred Bond. We have studied this here before. It is a good book. It's a much shorter book, and it's much more like concise on describing each of the things. There are a couple of points uh, in the Mosaic Covenant that I now disagree with them on, but it is not significant enough to make you not read it. So, <laughs> um, so yeah, I think that's all I've got for tonight. No questions? I have one question. All right, go We're for it. You talk about Adam and the federal head. Did you say that there, you have scripture references you just didn't put them on here? Yes. Can you share them so that I can write them down on my cover? Yes. I will have to. Or if not, just later. Yeah, I may have to give them to you later. But um, I just wonder if it was in. It might be in here. Um. Yeah, I can send them out um, to you. Yeah, because it's all at home in my notes. Uh, but yeah, there are um, definitely lots of places in the scripture, especially when you get into like um, the New Testament where it's talking about the first Adam and the second Adam, where it's relating Christ is the federal head and Adam is. They don't, they obviously don't use the word federal head. That's the reformed words. But um, yes, I will send all that to you. Yep. What is the um, opposing theology to covenant theology? Um, the opposing theology would be dispensational theology. Okay. Um, I did one of his lessons in there is on dispensationalism, um, and it's primarily focused on classic dispensationalism, which basically says that, to sum it up, is like God um, interacts with his people in very specific different ways throughout history. Okay. And one of the large things, the difference would be also that uh, they think anything promised to Israel is for Israel and it does not translate over to the church. Um, they also have very different um, in times theology as well, um, mostly to do with um, the church having to leave before Israel can get their promises and things like that. So dispensationalism is the opposing view. I do know that there is like more modern views on dispensationalism. I don't know what those are though. Okay. Um, I did not take the time to study that. <laughs> so, so is it one or the other or are there just some denominations that just don't focus on either of those options? And I, as far as, I mean, from what I've read, it seems like it's kind of one or the other. I'm sure there are people out and denominations out there that don't really focus on it, but it, 
seems as though they are it's one or the other is at least from what i've read um well and um our church used to be dispensationalist (laughs) so this also has helped clarify for me why people were so upset when we changed theologically because it to me at the time because i didn't know enough about it about dispensational work i didn't know anything because i was you know like 20 something and so at the time i didn't it didn't seem like that big of a deal now i get it <laughs> like we were changing their theological framework um because it would be like us going down to dispensationalism and i would leave <laughs> so i'm like so i get it i get it so like that it's just been interesting. So. It's not basically like this covenant theology, which is dispensational theology, is essentially like a framework for mm-hmm. understanding how yeah. God interacts with humanity. Yeah. Understanding yeah. God, the Bible, yeah. everything. Yeah, it's kind of everything. Um, it's the That's underarching the framework, framework of it all. Yeah. I'm just trying to understand myself and maybe help yeah. others to. What does, it, what does it mean? Why is it important? Yeah, yeah. There may be a lot of, I think there is, for a lot of people in like your average Baptist or fundamentalist or independent church, quite a lot of overlap in a lot of our service beliefs. Oh, yeah. um, I, like, did Jesus come to earth? Was he born with the Virgin Mary and he died and he rose again? And you say, yes, yes, we, we believe yeah. that. We believe everything that happened here. Like, there's a lot of overlap in mm-hmm. beliefs, but it's yeah. that underlying theology and you know, those yeah. things that underlay everything are pretty important. Yeah. I mean, I would imagine of a very large portion of at least American Christianity, I can't speak for other countries, but have no idea. Yeah. <laughs> they have no idea. Their church, their denomination may believe one thing, but I don't know. That most, I mean, I think most people in our church wouldn't necessarily know, or they might know they're supposed to say they're covenantal, but they don't know why. That was me up until a couple of years ago, like when I started studying for myself. I knew that we had changed to covenantal, but I didn't know what that was. Or like why it was important. It seems like the emphasis was more systematic instead of the biblical broad stroke view of humanity. I don't know. Um, For, I would say for dispensationalism, it is more systematic. Systematic. Yes. And that's what people get fixated on. I would think and talk more about rather than the theology. Yeah. Yeah. Like the overarching story of the Bible is definitely a reformed covenantal thing not a dispensational because with dispensational it is or class I mean, classic dispensationalism it is like this period of time mm-hmm. God related to people in this one way mm-hmm. and then it changed when this was given and then it's like and it changes and so we relate to God and to all of it in a different way than the people in the Old Testament did where we are saying we relate to it the same way. We've just been given more revelation, so we have more clarity, but it's still the same. It's still the same covenant. It's still the same everything. We just, we have the benefit of having a full Bible where we can read it and we read the revelation in full where they only had partial revelation at that point. And so, and you'll hear a lot of times too where people will refer to these as like, these are the shadows of this. Because at this point we have full clarity and at this point they have shadows looking toward that new reality. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Anything else? Any other questions? All right. 
And I think we're done. Good job. Right. Thank you. Yeah.